right. Good morning, Redeemer Church. Uh, it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, I think a lot of people say that when they preach, but uh, really it's my first sermon in a really long time. Um, it really is a privilege and not somewhere I expected to be when I first walked in the doors here about four and a half years ago. Um, so before we start, let's just spend a moment in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, I just come before you this morning, humbled God. And I ask that you would take my stammering words and fleeting thoughts and that you would form something cohesive and helpful and beneficial for the church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are regular here and you came expecting a video of a man dressed in black, instead you're getting a live sermon from a man in blue. I apologize for the confusion. I was actually joking with Dirk when we were scheduling this uh, week that we should do the installation after the sermon just in case, you know, things <laughs> fell apart, the wheels come off. So uh, if you're wondering, why is this guy preaching? I think uh, Donovan mentioned some of those things in the installation, um, but really I wanted to just give you a sense, a little bit of my background, since it's the first time I'm speaking, um, to really to help you understand, um, you know, maybe what I am and what I'm not when it comes to teaching the Word. And so, um, to begin, what I'm not, I'm not an academic Bible scholar, I'm not a Greek or Hebrew linguistics expert, I'm not a theologian, I'm not even a seminary grad, right? So Donovan mentioned the, the role of lay pastor being someone who is a part of the church, who um, has another vocation, but we're serving as pastors. Um, and so, really, as I get into the word here, it's from that perspective. It's from the perspective of someone who um, has grown up in the church and loves the church, um, but essentially as one, one of you. And so, um, really, again, what I feel most strongly as, as my call for a pastor is that God has um, asked me to just serve and love the church. And so, um, that's something that I've been given the opportunity to do here at Redeemer over the past few years. And so, preaching is really just an extension of that. It's another way to be able to serve the church. So, <clears throat> We're here this morning, we're in the midst of a sermon series on the book of Hebrews, and it's called Out of the Shadows. Um, so if you've been following along, uh, this is the fourth installment in that series. And really the, the idea, the concept, Out of the Shadows, is that we live in a world of shadows. So the world that we live in, the things that we see and touch and hear, are all, um, they all point to something else. They point to a reality that's greater than our own. Uh, so we've talked about that with Christ being the substance, be, being the underpinning truth and reality of the universe. And so there's this thought that as we look at the world and as we look at Scripture, we see things that point to Christ. And that's what the book of Hebrews is, is trying to help us understand how the Scriptures point to Christ. And so as we dive in here, um, one of the things that's been helpful for me is I was actually... Um, just kind of cruising through a study on the book of Hebrews by Jen Wilkin called Better. And she points out that, you know, if we're reading a letter, we don't just rip open the envelope, skip to the third page, read a sentence, and feel like we've understood the intent of the author or the context that it happens in. So that's part of the point of this series is that we started at the beginning, we're working our way through, um, but that we understand the context of the letter that Hebrews is written to. And so this was mentioned in previous sermons, but this, this letter is written to Hebrews, to believers, with a Hebrew background. 
Um, and so one of the things that's critical to understand about that is that this assumes a strong knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is something that uh, if you grew up in the church, maybe you have some of that background. Um, but for a lot of us, it's a struggle to really look at Scripture and see it from the context of someone who was raised, um, you know, going to the tabernacle, going to the temple. That's something that we struggle to do sometimes. Um, so the other thing I want to mention as we get into this passage is that, so we're talking about Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4, which you heard read already. But really, the, the bulk of the teaching today is going to come from the uh, verses 1 through 3. So if you look at the second half of verse 3, it says, it was declared, this is talking about the message that was declared, and it says, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So there's a lot more that could be said about that, um, and should be said about that, but really in this passage, the function of those verses is to describe the authority of the message that we're given, right? So he's the writer of Hebrews is underscoring the authority of the message of verses 1 through 3. So that's really where we're going to spend our time today. And if we um, extend the letter analogy, the first, uh, second half of verse 3 and verse 4, it's like seeing the presidential seal on the outside of a letter, right? Like the seal of the office of the president connotates an authority that the letter carries. But we still have to open the letter and read the message on the inside. So that's what we want to do today. We understand the message has authority and we want to know what that message is. So as we dive in here, um, <clears throat> again, thinking about this from a, a Hebrew context, someone who was raised under the law. So they had the scriptures written by Moses, right? They knew that in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? He created man in his image. He placed him in the garden. He placed him in paradise. He blessed mankind, said, be fruitful and multiply. And then things start to go wrong pretty quickly. And so as we look at here in, in Hebrews 2, we're seeing a warning. And this warning is really against what we see in the Hebrew Scriptures, right? So there's two components of the warning. The first one is we know from uh, later on in Hebrews chapter 10 that at least some of the people in this letter were facing persecution. So they were, they were being arrested, they were having their property seized, um, some of them being, were being tortured and executed. So there's a component of this warning that's a warning against staying steadfast in the face of persecution. But there's another component that applies to all of us, regardless of whether we're facing persecution or not, which is just the call of all believers to be faithful to the message that we received. And so that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. And so this would have been familiar to um, a Hebrew reader, someone who is receiving this letter, because this is something that the scriptures testify to all through the Old Testament. So we, we talked about, okay, God created man. He set him in the garden, in his paradise. Um, they had communion. They walked together in the cool of the day, right? And then immediately, chapter 3, Adam sins, and he falls, right? And Adam, in that moment, is a representative for all mankind. He sins individually, but it's a prophecy that all mankind is going to fall because of Adam's fall. So then we see just as dominoes, chapter after chapter. We see Cain sin. We see the sin of the, of the peoples at Babel. We, and then we start to see Israel sinning over and over and over again. And so it just creates this, uh, this thread throughout all of the, the Hebrew scriptures that 
we are going to rebel against God. That's what we see here. So the warning is against that rebellion. So if we look in um, verse 2, it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the question to be asked in my mind as I look at that is what was the reliable message of the angels? Um, Angels appear a lot in Scripture, right? They show up at a lot of times. They deliver a lot of messages. The word angel means messenger. So it kind of makes sense that we would have messengers who bring messages, right? So there's a wide variety of messages that angels bring throughout Scripture. Um, But in this case, there's a specific message being referred to, and there's a clue at the end of verse 2. And it says, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Well, which message would that have been? Um, And this is somewhere where, as a 21st century reader, it didn't jump out at me necessarily. Um, But what we can see is that Hebrew tradition held that when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, that that was delivered through the angels. And so we can actually read this in Scripture. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. It's mentioned in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 19. But I want to pull out one specific passage um, in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. So this is Stephen's message to the high priest um, immediately before he's stoned. And this is what Stephen says. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You, and here's where it comes in, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So this passage is a really great parallel for Hebrews 2 um, because it really underscores two points. So it highlights what the message was. It clarifies that for us, right? So we can see the message delivered by angels that was reliable in Hebrews 2 was the law that was given through Moses. What it also highlights is this theme, (laughs) that the law was given, and then there's immediately this rejection of the law by the people who received it, right? That's Stephen's accusation against really all of the religious leaders in all of Israel is that they killed the prophets and they killed the righteous one, right? So we receive the law in immediate rebellion. So I want to dive into this a little bit more. Um, There's a really great book that Dirk recommended to me and I just finished reading. It's called Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus. About 120 pages, so it's quick. Um, certainly would recommend it. But it's written by three Messianic Jews who are essentially um, creating an apologetic for uh, Jews to come to faith in Christ through the reading and interpretation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So one of the big points that they make in the book is that the law that was this reliable message that we see in Hebrews 2 bears witness against us, right? And it says that. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So we can read about this um, in Deuteronomy 31, verses 25 and 26. Basically, uh, Moses is um, telling the people that we're going to put the, um, the tablets, are going to go in the Ark of the Covenant, and it's going to bear witness against us. And so the law immediately, as soon as it's given, is a testimony against the unfaithfulness of the people. So all the Old Testament is an account that we cannot live the righteous life that God desires. The commands to be obeyed are immediately followed by a prophecy of disobedience. 
And going back to the reading Moses seeing Jesus, the authors make this point. They say, Adam's story was never intended to warn Israel from following in Adam's footsteps, i.e. a warning to keep the law. Rather, Adam's story is intended to be a prophecy that Israel will follow in Adam's footsteps. And through Adam, all of us follow in those footsteps, right? We all follow in that sin nature. So where does that leave us then? The law requires obedience on the one hand, but it prophesies disobedience. The challenge is that the law cannot remedy the malady of the heart. It contains commandments of holiness and prescribes actions of punishment in response to sin. It does not have a provision to change the desires of men's hearts. I think most of us have heard the phrase, laws are made to be broken. In a sense, that is what the law is. It's intended to show us, as we violate the law, our own brokenness, our own inability to meet God's righteous laws. So that's really kind of dark, right? So what is the good news? Well, the good news is that God is not caught by surprise at our failure to uphold the law. In fact, he is the lawgiver, the mediator, and the judge. Um, Some of you may have seen, there's a 90s uh, action movie called Judge Dredd with Sylvester Stallone. It's uh, this dystopian future when everyone is a lawbreaker. There's no one who's following the law. Does that sound familiar? And so there are raised up these individuals to a role of judge. In the movie, that's described as being police, jury, and executioner. So if they find someone violating the law, they can essentially execute judgment on the spot and kill that person for violating the law. So Sylvester Stallone's character, Judge Dredd, he's the most uh, infamous of these judges. He's the most stringent. And he ends up being framed for a murder that he doesn't commit, and he's convicted. And in this, in this scene, when he's um, realizing that he's being convicted for a crime he didn't commit, he says, it's a lie. The evidence has been falsified. It's impossible. I never broke the law. I am the law. Right? That's the declaration that Sylvester Stallone makes. I am the law. And it's this tone of self-righteous defiance. Essentially that he, he is above the law, that he cannot be prosecuted because he is the law. Well, if you think about that from a Christian perspective... Jesus was in a very similar situation, right? Framed for crimes he didn't commit. And he had every right to say that. Jesus could have rightfully said, I am the law. But he didn't, right? He took that opportunity to be silent, to forego his rights, to go to the cross and make a sacrifice for us. And in fact, in a previous, uh, before Jesus was crucified, he said something very similar. So this is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. He says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And in verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So this passage, again, highlights two components of this theme that we need to understand. So the first one is, I think it's clear from Scripture and from this passage, we understand Jesus did not have a high view of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. But what he's saying is that as representatives of the people, 
They had pursued legalistic righteousness under the law to the utmost. They were the ones who were trying to find every minutia of how to be righteous on their own. And he says, that's not enough. He says, unless, you, unless your righteousness surpasses that, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So how do you surpass the righteousness of the ones who spent their whole lives dedicated to being righteous under the law? Well, he told us in verse 17, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. So Jesus isn't doing away with the law. He's saying, I fulfilled the law on your behalf. I did all the things that you couldn't do. I lived the righteous life that you couldn't on your behalf. So Jesus is the way that you surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. The other thing that's good news is that the law was intended to be a temporary shadow of redemption. Just as the tabernacle was a temporary shadow of the heavenly throne room. So there's going to be a day when the law doesn't exist, right? It's been fulfilled in Christ for us. But the ultimate redemption is in Christ, and that's eternal. It's not temporary. And so this was all intended to happen through the Messiah. We see this in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. So this is God speaking to the nation Israel in exile. And this is what he tells them. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what's being promised through the prophet Ezekiel is this future state, which wasn't there yet, right, at the time, that was beyond the law. The law didn't have the ability to change hearts, and God's promising, I will give you a new heart, right? Something that the law could never do. And so as you read this passage, it's riddled with God promising, I will, right? I will do this. And what's the result? That transformation is within us, right? So God acts, and we're transformed. I will give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So it's the changing heart that even <laughs> wants to, will cause us to obey his statutes and obey his rules. So another thing that's worth mentioning in this passage is that we spent the last several weeks talking about the supremacy of Christ. And last week specifically highlights the supremacy of Christ over the angels. And as I mentioned earlier, the word angel means messenger. So Jesus, so we're looking at messengers, and we see that Jesus is superior to these other messengers. So Jesus is a superior messenger. And it's, if you think about this in terms of diplomacy in the world today, the status of the messenger counts. And that's true in Scripture, too. So messages of greater importance require a greater messenger. And we can offer um, offense when we send too low of a status of a messenger to deliver news to someone that we, we trust and honor. And so God has sent the most superior messenger to deliver this good news of salvation. And so I want to focus specifically, uh, so here in verse 3 it says, "...it was declared at first by the Lord." So this message that the Lord has declared 
and declared first. I want to talk just briefly about that. So what is the message declared by the Lord? Well, in John 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this is Jesus the Lord telling his disciples the message that he is the way to the Father. So if you were a Jewish person, you would have thought that the way to the Father, to holiness, was through the law, through upholding the law. And Jesus is saying the way to the Father is through me. I upheld the law on your behalf. And this is important because um, we call Jesus Savior, right? He's our Savior, offering the gift of salvation. And the title of Savior is inseparable from the gift of salvation through the work of Christ. He could not be called Savior if he was unable to save. And so I mentioned um, Jesus being a greater messenger, and we talked about how the law was delivered to Moses through the angels, and so when, when Hebrews tells us that Jesus was superior to the angels, and here in chapter 2 we're seeing that this is a more superior message to the message they declared, so too is the atonement that Jesus offers superior to the atonement that was offered through the law, right? There's no more yearly sacrifices, there's no more um, high priests on our behalf, there's one sacrifice and one high priest, and that doesn't fall on us, he's accomplished all of that. And through the salvation that Jesus offers us, what's the difference? How has is, how is life changed? Why is that salvation so great? And this isn't an exhaustive list, but I want to highlight a few things that are different when we have salvation in Christ versus life apart from God. And there's references for all these if you want them, but God offers us life instead of death. He brings us into the light from darkness. Instead of being hungry, he offers us the bread of life. Instead of being thirsty, he offers us living water. He speaks truth instead of lies. He gives us freedom instead of slavery. He gives us mercy instead of judgment, love instead of hate, hope instead of despair. He gives us a high priest instead of the law. And as we've been talking about recently, he gives us substance instead of shadows. So the point of all this, the good news, is to not just try harder, right? That was the law. That's what the Pharisees were attempting to do. Just as Israel drifted from the previous lesser message and lesser messengers, in our flesh, we will drift from the greater message and the greater messenger. So the point is that the new covenant is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who will not drift away from us. So what does that look like? What does that mean for those of us who believe to not drift away, to pay closer attention to the message we have heard? So with these last few minutes, I'd like to read uh, three different uh, excerpts, three stories. So one's from an author, one's a snippet of my own testimony, and then there's one from Scripture that I'll use to close. So the first is from Jared Wilson. So if you're not familiar, Jared Wilson, he's a pastor, a speaker, and an author, Um, He came to Iowa several years ago and and spoke at a conference um, hosted by the Gospel Coalition, and he wrote this book called Gospel Wakefulness. So I would recommend listening to um, his perspective on this, but I just took a snippet out of what he wrote regarding the book and this concept of gospel wakefulness, because I think it goes hand in hand with this warning in Hebrews 2 to pay closer attention. So this is what Jared Wilson said about his experience. 
in about this book. It's essentially about personal revival. It's about the kind of quantum leap in sanctification that seems to occur when one is found at the intersection of profound brokenness and a beholding of the glory of the gracious Christ. It is about that returned prodigal sort of breakthrough where one comes to, in the book's definition, treasure Christ more greatly and savor his power more sweetly. That book was really my working out with literary fear and trembling what had happened to me about five years previous to the writing. When the Almighty God reached through the roof of the home of our guest bedroom of our Nashville home, where I was desperate and depressed and grabbed hold of my soul to remind me of the good news of Jesus. It wasn't a new message. It wasn't anything I hadn't heard before. But in the midst of my pain and ruin, it was as if I had heard it for the first time. It was my moment of gospel wakefulness. The dawning for me of the realization that the gospel wasn't just for lost people, but also for messed up Christians like me. The gospel in my heart grew ten sizes that day. And by God's grace, I keep going back to that moment in my heart and mind. It made me gospel-centered before I knew anything about a movement or a coalition or a tribe. Those things didn't even really exist at that time. I didn't become stubborn about gospel centrality because somebody handed me a book or took me to a conference or told me to listen to somebody's podcast. It happened to me because one moment I wanted to kill myself and the next I was rescued by a grace I was afraid had left me far behind. Fifteen years or so on from that moment and now ten years on from the book, I still aim to be driven by gospel wakefulness. Others may move on to other things, but I want to stay right here, never forgetting how frail I am nor how beautiful my Jesus is. So that story really resonates for me um, because... It's very similar to mine. And so, like I mentioned, I came to uh, Redeemer about four and a half years ago, following about a six-year period where I'd been running from God. And I call that now my Jonah period, but at the end of that, for various reasons, I was in a tailspin. My life was falling apart. Uh, I was depressed. I had suicidal thoughts. And God met me in the middle of that and drew me to himself. So I want to read you just uh, a brief excerpt from that, from my testimony that I wrote down. Over the ensuing months, my heart changed at a more rapid pace than I ever believed possible. And it was not because I changed my habits or found some gumption or pulled myself up by the bootstraps. All I did was exist, and I was transformed. It was a profound and extended encounter with a living God who is fulfilling the promises to be faithful to complete the work he started in me. And like Moses, my face almost started to shine. It was being a lost sheep, terrified and alone, seeing the good shepherd returning to bring me back to the fold. It was coming home destitute and penniless as the prodigal son and seeing my father running to embrace me, preparing a feast in my honor. Words cannot adequately express the extent to which my spirit came alive in joyful worship those first few months. Since then, I've grown to love group and love the church as Christ's bride in a way I never did before. And the biggest change has been understanding God's sovereignty at work in my life and finally feeling the weight of my entire upbringing of legalistic, works-based redemption fall away. I had always known salvation was God's work, but I had thought sanctification was mine. When I finally was confronted by my own depravity and God's totally irresistible grace, I felt like I believed for the first time all over again. I started tithing because I actually wanted to do it. I finally experienced regular time reading scripture and throwing myself down before the throne of God in prayer. 
I wanted to serve. I wanted to be in fellowship. I wanted to be generous. I wanted to care for the needs of others. I wanted to be anywhere doing anything where God's people were present because I wanted to be transformed all the more. The most wonderful part is that I cannot claim one iota of credit. In not one single instance did I ever decide to change or will myself to do better. It was fully and only the work of the Holy Spirit changing the desires of my heart. So I hope for you today, if you haven't experienced that, if you haven't experienced a moment in your life, if you don't experience that, where God has revealed his greatness and goodness toward you, his faithfulness, just ask him for that. Ask him to show up. To show you how great your salvation is. 